Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Aruni Batnagar, a leading expert in environmental toxin exposure and heart health. Dr. Batnagar will be discussing how environmental toxins like air pollution affect health and lead to an increased risk of heart attacks, obesity and diabetes. He'll also explain the importance of urban green spaces and why spending time outside improves life expectancy. Learn how circadian rhythms, sunlight exposure and seasonal changes can affect your health status. Dr. Batnagar is a professor of medicine and distinguished university scholar at the University of Louisville in the USA. He's the director of the Christina Lee Brown Envirome Institute and the co-director of the American Heart Association Tobacco Regulation Center. He's a leading expert on the mechanisms by which environmental toxin exposures affect heart and blood vessels and increase cardiovascular disease risk. Dr. Batnagar's work has led to the creation of a new field of medicine called environmental cardiology. His research, supported by several grants from the National Institutes of Health, has led to the publication of more than 250 research papers and 20 book chapters. He's also mentored over 55 students, fellows and trainees. Hi, Dr. Batnagar. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Good to meet you, Michelle. Likewise. Now, the impact of environmental toxins on health is such an interesting topic, such a big topic. So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about your research and experience in this field. But firstly, though, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an expert in environmental cardiology? I'm currently a professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Louisville. But I started my career in India, where I got my PhD. And from there, I moved to Texas, where I spent 14 years. I did my fellowship there, learning and training how to do cardiac electrophysiology. And that was my interest from the beginning, learning how the heart works and what are the electrical mechanisms that support cardiac beat and function. And from there, I was more and more concerned about the high rates of heart disease and what it is that contributes to this rate. And so we discovered early on, this was in the 90s, that maybe exposure to air pollutants could be one important overlooked risk of heart disease. And so I've been working in that area ever since, looking at a variety of different inhaled toxins and how they affect heart health. Amazing. Such an interesting topic. And I think so much more research coming out now about all these environmental toxins and how they affect health. So what are some of the most common environmental toxins and and how do they affect our health? So there are a lot of different things that can affect our health uh, that are present in the environment. The most important ones, and certainly the ones that have the most widespread impact, are these small, what we call fine and ultrafine particles that float in the air, and we call them particulate matter, so it's PM. And so there are two types. Uh, one is PM10, which is a little coarser, 10 microns, and a smaller one, PM2.5, which is slightly smaller. And these go in deep in the lung and are lodged there, and then they can create inflammation and dysfunction in the lung that carries over to the blood vessels and the heart. 
Then there are other gases that we inhale that are present in the air, and these are called volatile organic compounds or VOCs, things like benzene and toluene and xylene and acrolein, and all of those could cause a variety of different cardiovascular issues. And of course, then there are a whole range of other ones, for example, metals that are found and, you know, and so on, and plastics that are around these days. So there is a range of exposures that we have to watch out for that could adversely impair health. And where would people find these kind of toxins? Is it like fragrances, exhaust fumes? Which are the most problematic? So the most problematic are the ones that are present in the air as particles. These are especially fine and ultrafine particles. They're generated by automobile exhaust. About, I would say, 85-90% people in the world live in areas where they're exposed to high levels of particulate matter or PM. So we have an almost ubiquitous exposure to these uh, particles. Then there are these other toxic gases, for example, ozone, and that's generated from a variety of different sources and could be generated by heat and so on, secondary from these exhausts, as well as the VOCs that I was talking about. Those are from like paints and lead thinners and fragrances and so on. And even, you know, compressed wood can sort of exude these uh, gases. Yeah, and I think just even inside the home, just sprays from chemicals and things as well, would those pose a massive risk as well? Yes. So in terms of particles, the major indoor sources could be things like candles and incense and cooking. So cooking can, like cooking over an open walk and, you know, uh, generate a lot of particles that you breathe in. And so those are the major sources. Then there are others, for example, street furniture, paints, lead thinners, cleaners. And so there is a range of chemicals that we are surrounded with this chemical soup all the time. <laughs> so what you're saying is that those gases from the oils heating in the pan, they're escaping into you know the environment and you're breathing those in and they're obviously causing damage in the body. Yes. And as well as the smoke that you see coming out of the cooking, you see a little vapor coming out of that. Mm -hmm. That contains a variety of small particles that could be problematic. And how could somebody minimize their risk? Obviously, not frying and not cooking with oils and things, but is there anything that they can do inside their house to minimize the risk of exposure to all these toxins? So, yeah, like candles, avoid candle burning inside for long periods of time. Incense is a particularly high source of particles. The cleaners and paint thinners should be outside and not be minimally used. There are people, at least here in the United States, they have an attached garage and they store gasoline there and you can get the stench of gasoline coming into the house. So uh, if you can smell something that's unpleasant, then maybe there's some source that you need to avoid. Mm -hmm. As well as good ventilation, obviously. Yes, exactly right. Good ventilation, as well as filtrations. There are lots of different filters available for central air conditioning in particular and heat that you can put on that would at least remove some of these uh, sort of what we call chemicals. And, but there are also some biologics that could be removed. They have UV lamps that are installed in, in-house that could remove all the pollen and dust and other biologics as well. Okay. So is there any particular 
type of those air purification that people should be looking for? Like what's the best type that you could get? There are these HEPA filters that come in that you could put into your system that will remove. And if you have ones that would remove part of the VOCs, that would be most ideal. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, how about the metals and heavy metals? You touched on those. What are some common sites that people would find those in the environment? So there are metals that a particular concern has always been lead, isn't it? Mm -hmm. For many years, we've had lead in the gasoline. It's been removed, but they're still around. There used to be lead paints, and so people have removed those as well. But there are some legacy houses with old paints and particularly harmful to children because lead uh, affects cognitive function and brain growth. And so there has to be specific attention paid to lead in, in terms of paints in the old houses. Also, in the U.S., we've had huge problems with lead in drinking water. And it's not so much that the water from the central source is bad, but people have old homes and these homes have metal pipes and they corrode and lead comes and leaches out into water. And so that becomes a huge issue. There are other chemicals, for example, cadmium and zinc and mercury, but they are in places and drinking water where you know, you are close to a mining area or so on. And so there will be exposure to such metals, including mercury. There is also some places where you have exposure to arsenic from the soil in some parts of the world, but that's less frequent in Europe and northern United States than it is in Asia. So how would somebody reduce their risk? Obviously, a good water filter would be a good starting point. But in terms of, you know, arsenic in the soils and things, how could they reduce their exposure if they're living somewhere where those metals are present? Yeah, so that's a tricky issue. If the water that is sent out by, say, municipal facilities, that water is usually clean and tested and, and there are limits, at least in the EU and in the United States, to ensure that the water is clean. So I think that's safe to drink. But what happens, though, if you have old pipes and so on, that that could lead to leaching of these metals. And in the U.S., we have a program that we can call the city and get our water tested if we have old pipes at home and they do it for free. I'm not sure whether there is a similar program in the EU doing that or in the U.K. But things like arsenic and so on in the soil are very difficult to trace. So usually what we say, there are areas you can look up which actually have high levels of arsenic and we would uh, advise not drinking, say, well water or natural water that's there, but sort of cleaned water that comes out of the tap. Absolutely. Investing in a good quality water filter, I think is absolutely key. Yes. So a lot of your research obviously focuses on the cardiovascular system. So you also talk about obesity and diabetes, how it can increase your risk being exposed to things like air pollution and other environmental toxins. Can you talk to us about that in a bit more detail? Yeah. So many years ago, we did these experiments, and these were with mice, that when we exposed them to polluted air, and this air pollution is derived mainly from automobile exhaust, and when the mice are exposed to these pollutants, they become insulin resistant. And that means that the insulin is not working in the body as well as it could. And that is a prelude to diabetes and as well as to obesity. 
So we found that mice became more obese and they were more insulin resistant when they were exposed to polluted air. And then there were a range of similar studies in humans where others and we found that exposure or living in environments that have high levels of pollution, especially uh, PM, that there is a higher risk of diabetes and obesity associated with such conditions. And so we think that when uh, we breathe in these polluted components, that they lead to a sort of general inflammation in the body. So the body thinks that it's being attacked by microbes or some sort of infection, and it mounts a response, which we call inflammation. And then this inflammation then gives rise to insulin resistance and the sequelae of obesity and diabetes. Wow, it's so interesting. Amazing, isn't it? How these toxins just uh, all around us and, you know, in light of sort of, you know, all these health conditions that have kind of come out of the last sort of 10, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, people have been thinking that part of the obesity and diabetes epidemic is just due to poor eating habits and lack of physical activity. And those are indeed the most important risk factors. But we need to pay attention to the environment we are in also because that could impose additional risk. It certainly can. Now, you've also done a lot of research on the importance of urban green spaces and how they positively impact, you know, the health of the community. Can you tell us a bit about this? Right. So as we were discussing there Evidence was accumulating over the years that exposure to polluted air increases your risk of heart disease and diabetes and obesity. So what is a solution, right? So we could ban all automobiles and cars and and then, you know, (laughs) that's not going to happen. Well, it did happen during COVID and, you know, there was air suddenly got cleaner, right? It did. Yeah, but we can't continue (laughs) that mode of living anymore. And so the thing is that what can we do to protect ourselves generally from air pollution, even if we have clean houses and we put HEPA filters in a house and we have clean water, we have to go outside. And I think that's so critical to be around in the open and be around nature. So we thought maybe one way to decrease exposure to air pollutants was to increase greenness around residential areas. We tried to look for literature and there was a lot of different studies showing that people who live in green areas are in general healthier, have less disease risk, less heart disease and less obesity and diabetes. But people who live in green areas are actually richer, more educated, more careful about their health. And so the health outcomes may have nothing to do with greenness, but may relate to the socioeconomic status of the people who live in greener areas. So we have been studying greenness and to see what are the effects of urban green spaces independent of these economic factors that might improve health. And we found that people who are, again, living in green spaces where there's large amounts of greenness have lower exposure to these VOCs and particulate matter and other toxins because trees sort of shield exposure from uh, automobile exhaust and other components of polluted air. They remove these VOCs and toxic gases and therefore that having green spaces may be beneficial. 
Wow, that's really interesting. So they're essentially just absorbing those toxins for us. And also act like a barrier, right? So if you have all these gases coming your way and there is a, a large green barrier, it can interrupt the flow physically. Yeah, and you've been doing lots of work with this fantastic initiative called the Green Heart Project. So can you explain to our listeners what this project is and, and your role in it? Yes. So as we were talking about that, there is some evidence that people who live in green spaces have a lower risk of heart disease, even overall mortality. People who live in very green spaces have maybe, you know, 11 to 12 percent lower risk of dying than people who live in less green spaces. But this was somewhat of an association. You know, there could be lots of other factors that could account for these differences. So we thought, well, maybe one more rigorous way of looking at the contribution of greenness would be to go to a community and deliberately increase greenness in in that area. So this is a type of study we call interventional study. It's like a normal drug trial where you have a group of people, you give a pill to one group and not to the other group and see what happens. So it's the same idea. And so we went to a community here in Kentucky and we selected an area and we measured the levels of air pollution in the area. We did a community health assessment to evaluate the risk of heart disease in the community. And then we are planting about eight to 10,000 trees and shrubs. Because if you plant small trees, you know, small shrubs and so on, it'll take a long time. So we had to plant really large trees, um, maybe 20, 30 foot trees. And you can imagine if you want to plant like 8,000 of them, that's going to take a lot of time, effort and resources to do. Yes. But we were undaunted by this uh, challenge. And so we just finished that uh, planting about last month. So we call it the Green Heart Project, and this is a project that's been funded by the National Institutes of Health here in the United States, which funds the clinical evaluation and the air pollution evaluation. But uh, the greening itself has been funded by the Nature Conservancy, that they want to see what does an increase in urban green space do to the health of a community, the levels of air pollution, and so on. Fantastic. Such a great initiative. And for those in the UK, there are similar urban garden initiatives that promote these community gardens, you know, food growing spaces. So there's the Urban Growth London, Nature Friendly Schools and the Urban Garden Project. So we'll pop some details in the show notes so people can go and check those out for more details. Yes. The difference, though, is that few studies, and I'm not aware of many, would Actually, when you put the greenness, they do not evaluate what the impact on the community has been, Mm -hmm. right? So we take greenness. So if we put green spaces, then that's great. And there is no greater justification needed to improve greenness. And that's true. But if we pay attention to what is happening with the health of the community, we would be able to do this better than if we are sort of over-enthusiastic in a zeal and uncritically increase green spaces. Are they planning to expand that project across, you know, internationally or across the US? 
So there has been a lot of interest in the project, as you might imagine, from places in the U.S. as well as internationally. I've had conversations with people here in you know Dallas and Philadelphia, but also cities like uh, Sydney in Australia and Milan and Bristol mm-hmm. have expressed interest. They want to do similar things, but putting trees is difficult and expensive enough, and then to you know marshal the resources to be able to evaluate the changes in the health of a community is particularly difficult and more expensive. There have been a couple of uh, studies from China where they have put what they call like emerald necklaces around a couple of cities, including Wuhan, and they would then measure the effects of this green space increase in terms of walkability, in terms of you know health outcomes in a community. So I think that the idea is pardon upon taking root and and spread, <laughs> and spreading. <laughs> well, that's great. These things will, you know, hopefully naturally progress, and we can see more and more of these projects. You know, that would be fantastic. So, does it depend on the type of tree and where you put these trees? Yes. So. In our research, we found that trees such as the conifers and evergreens seem to be particularly more effective. First, they are more effective because they can remove these particles more efficiently than broadleaf deciduous trees. So therefore, they seem to work better. There is also evidence that because these trees are green all year round, so, you know, we get twice the greenery for the same tree. (laughs) So that helps because they can create a more effective physical barrier. So we think that trees could be helpful in terms of what type they are, but also the shape. So, for example, imagine a city street, like a canyon with high-rise buildings on each side of the street. And then on the street, you plant these lollipop trees in a row, right? That's what usually done. But these lollipop trees then trap air pollutants underneath their canopy. And so you actually increase the levels of pollution at the nose level. So instead of helping, you hurt the environment if you're not particularly careful about the configuration and the shape of these trees. So what we are trying to study is what particular shapes and sizes and types and species and at what placement would be most effective. So interesting. Something you'd never really think about, especially not that certain trees can trap more more toxins. So what's the next stage in your project? Like I said, we just finished planting all the greenness. So what we are trying to do now is to go back to the community and measure the levels of air pollution and to be measuring the level of cardiovascular disease risk so that we can compare those results that we got two, three years ago before we planted to see if there has been any improvement. We have a sort of surrounding area, which we call the control area, in which we did not plant any trees. So we would follow people there as well to see if there were any temporal changes which are not related to greenness and so on, because, you know, lots of things have changed because of COVID and other interruptions. So we do need to have a parallel control group. So that's what we are busy doing now in trying to evaluate. Then there are some critical questions that remain unanswered. If the trees are really good at removing air pollution, is that the only reason they create healthy neighborhoods? 
Could it be that these trees are actually creating a more pleasant environment to be in? Are there mental, psychological effects? Are there sociological effects that in green spaces people tend to be more outside, be more physically active, be more interactive with their neighbors? So is that a reason for the what we call the salutary effects of greenness? So that's what we are doing right now. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM. Still to come, I talk to Dr. Batnagar about the impact that sleep, sunlight and changing seasons have on health and cardiovascular risk. Are you or a loved one struggling with health issues? Would you like to change career and become a natural therapist? CNM offers a wide range of short courses and diploma training both online and in class. Contact us today for a limited time to save 10% on short courses using the code PODCAST. Visit www.cnmpodcast.com. I think there's a lot to be said about that because whenever I go to a green area, especially I'm in London, so, you know, it's very concrete, you know, lots of buildings, high rises. So whenever you go somewhere that's really leafy, it does make you feel better. Yes. And also your health improves. So I have to tell you the story since you're in London. There was a very good study that came out of there. So they had these people with heart failure and in advanced issues with heart disease. And they took two groups and one of them, they make them walk in the Hyde Park and the other group, they walked through Oxford Street. And you could see the contrast in the two places. So they found that people who walked in Hyde Park showed improvements in their cardiac function that persisted over two weeks after the being there. Wow. And the people who went to Oxford Street, they had their symptoms worsen because of being in that area. So there is a large contrast in London that really could have high impact on your health. Wow. Yeah, I think walking through Oxford Street would make anyone's stress levels go through the roof, even without a heart condition. That's true. <laughs> it was too busy, too many people. And yeah, Hyde Park is obviously a very tranquil, lovely place to be. So that is very, very interesting. So another area where you've done a lot of research is about the importance of maintaining circadian rhythms and how this affects health. Can you firstly explain what circadian rhythm is and how disruptions to someone's circadian rhythm can affect their health? Yeah, so one of the things that we are studying in the Green Heart Project is if you have large areas of greenness around your house, you have not only lower levels of air pollutants, but you also have lower levels of noise and and changes in humidity and so on. So what we are studying is whether increasing greenness in an area would increase the quality of sleep. So we measure what we call architecture, but it is sleep duration, how deep you sleep, whether you have the, what we call rapid eye movement sleep, there's a deep sleep uh, when you dream, those sorts of things. So we are trying to understand the sleep quality and duration and how it is affected by greenness. And the reason we are doing it, because there is a lot of evidence and growing awareness that sleep is an important component of health. The American Heart Association in their health factors have just added sleep as one of their key ingredients of heart health. And the reason for that is that we are all attuned to the daily 24-hour rhythms of the planet, the night and day cycle. And we have in our brains what we call a master clock that sort of attunes to exposure to light 
and it regulates all the other clocks in the body. So each cell in the body has a clock. So there's millions of self clocks ticking inside you and the, there's a master clock sort of tuning them to set them right. And so our sleeping habits are synchronized with the light and day cycle. And with that, there are changes, we would say at least 20% of your genes change on a daily pattern. There are some genes are up in the night, some are up in the day. And this sort of uh, rhythm is called the circadian rhythm. And so there are certain times of day when you feed and you eat, then you have more efficient utilization of energy in comparison to other times where the metabolism is different. And so it is critical for health to be aligned to these rhythms. And if we disturb them, then there is a very significant toll on our physiology. For instance, people who work late shifts and people who are not attuned to these circadian rhythms have problems such as diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. And so we think that maintaining proper or tuned circadian rhythms is critical to health and disruption could lead to a variety of different health problems. Thank you for explaining that. So now going back to sort of the greenery, would you say that having greenery inside the house like plants and things like that would help sleep and help someone's health? That's still a matter of ongoing evaluation. There have been some reports, I think NASA put out the top 10 plants that should keep indoors to help clean up the air. But clean air does make a huge difference on sleep. And we found in our studies, have been repeatedly found in other studies, that exposure to air pollution can disrupt your sleep cycle. So you want to have a clean sleeping environment that is cool, that is free of pollutants, and that has less levels of noise in it. So if we have these sleep environments that are disturbing your sleep, then that would create downstream effects and have you can have health problems. Yeah, and also, obviously, having a good sleep routine and, you know, not sleeping with yes. your mobile by your head and turning off the Wi-Fi if you can. The blue light that we get from the mobile is particularly harmful and disruptive. So we are attuned to these light cycles. So in the morning, if you have exposure to bright light, so it would help you sleep better in the night. So you need to want to have early morning light exposures and then as the day progresses, you dim the lights and before sleeping that you have, you know, sufficiently dim lights around you and certainly lights that are, you know, redder and orangish, like glow of the sunset type of lights, not like the blue lights that we get from our mobiles and from our computers and so on. Those can disrupt the circadian rhythms. Yeah, I really like those Himalayan salt lamps, you know, that orangey glow, that was very relaxing. Where you say early light exposure, what do you mean by that? Just the light coming through the curtains or? So when you get up in the mornings, you have bright sunlight. And, you know, sometimes it's possible. Sometimes, you know, it's cloudy, then it's different. But uh, to the extent possible, natural light. It is important to be in the sun. We are like plants. So we synthesize chemicals when we're exposed to sunlight. And one of the chemicals that we synthesize is vitamin D. And so there are known dependencies of physiology on vitamin D, particularly your immune system, your bone growth, even your mood. 
it's kind of depends upon vitamin D levels. And vitamin D is derived from sunlight. And so direct exposure to sunlight is really good. Of course, you don't want to overdo it. So you get a, you know, whatever skin cancer or so on being in the sun all the time. But in northern climates, particularly in most places in the UK, but also here in the northern United States and like Boston and Canada, we get very little UV irradiation between, say, November and March. So all the vitamin D you need to make should be made between the summer months. And so there have been a lot of studies showing that people who maintain high levels of exposure to sunlight have lower numbers of health issues. There was one interesting study, and it was not substantiated later, but I find it intriguing that uh, women in Sweden, if they took time off in the summer and went to southern Europe to get enough sunlight exposure, had less health problems than people who did not go out to you know, vacation in southern Italy or wherever. So summer exposure to sunlight could be really beneficial. And you can store the vitamin D for a long time to last you through the winter. Yes, because I know in certain parts of Sweden, they have times of the year where they don't get any sunlight. It's quite dark most of the day. That's right. And I always wonder, you know, how people live there. It would be so depressing to have no sunlight at all. Apart from all the, you know, physiology and the health disease, it would be really difficult for someone like us who used to so much sunlight to be there. Yes, couldn't agree more. So yeah, we're having some glorious weather in the UK at the moment. But yeah, the winters do make it harder because... The days are a lot more cloudier, but I think just even getting out and about and just getting that fresh air is always a good idea and, you know, to lift mood and, you know, as you say, it's very beneficial for your health in general. We are now studying things like maybe there is more to this than we know. Maybe they're the, these trees that emit certain types of chemicals and these chemicals may be ones that can lower your heart rate, decrease anxiety, and help with depression and so on. So there have been several studies that people who spend time in nature, that they feel rejuvenated and refreshed because, you know, when we are in a social surrounding, we have to pay attention to everything. But our interaction with nature, for whatever reason, is effortless. So we don't have to pay deliberate attention to nature. The trees and the, and the landscape is just there. And just being in that area could have a markedly rejuvenating effect on people. Yeah. And according to your research, how much sun should one get per day to improve their health? That depends upon where you are in your geography. And so if you are in places where there is very little UV exposure, you need to be in the sun more or less. So that varies with geography. It also varies, obviously, with skin color. So people who are light-skinned are actually much more sensitive to sunlight than people who are dark-skinned. So if you are a dark-skinned person, you may need to be in sunlight twice as much to get as much vitamin D as a light-skinned person. But usual thumb recommendation is that between, say, noon to four, that if you can, in summer, could be outside for half an hour with sort of um, less clothing so that your correct skin exposure should be sufficient. Now, another area where you've done quite a bit of research is the changes in season and how that affects somebody's health. Is that mainly down to the sunlight or are there other factors in that as well? 
So we don't know. There have been some studies showing that, uh, going back to my interest in heart disease, that there are more cardiac deaths in the winter than in summer. And so we thought maybe it's the temperature and maybe in winter everybody's inside and there is, you know, more infections. You have you know, influenza and so on. And now we have COVID. So we have all these infections indoors. And so that's maybe responsible for the high mortality in winter. But then a friend of mine did a study in Los Angeles. And there we found the same thing that there was less cardiovascular mortality in winter, but there is no sort of winter to speak of there. So it's not the temperature. So we think maybe it's sunlight, but there may be other reasons. There are a variety of exposures that are different in summer than in winter, for example, pollen and other plant-derived chemicals, as well as, you know, dust and so on. And so the exposures may be different. We are actively investigating what may be the differences between one season to the other. And we are trying to work on the effect of different exposures, particularly biologic exposures that may be different in winter and summer. You would think that all these different types of exposures like, you know, mites and dust and pollen and or what all may be bad for you. But these natural exposures are not really so bad. And we have something we call uh, the hygiene hypothesis. So people who are very clean, who remain indoors, and the children who live in very clean environments seem to have more health problems than children who are out in nature playing in dirt with the farm animals and the slush and so on. And they seem to become more resilient to future infections and health problems than children brought up in ultra-clean environments with antibiotic soaps and uh, antiseptics and so on. So we've got to all get out in the muds and get dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I think there's certainly a lot to be said about that. And that comes up quite a lot as well. So yeah, it's a very interesting. So we've got to watch this space, see what other research comes out. Right. We have found in some studies, others have found that it is easier to control things like blood pressure and cholesterol levels for people in summer than it is in, in winter. And so maybe part of it could be light, not just even direct sunlight or making vitamin D, but just light exposure, which changes your metabolism and so on. So there are several studies showing that individuals in, in winter have what they call the winter blues. And so if they get strong exposure to like a sun lamp early in the morning in the winters as well, that helps overcome these winter blues and the sluggish metabolism and whatever other sort of adverse effects that long winters have on people. We're still trying to study that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Sun lamps to try one of those in winter. <laughs> it definitely would, if nothing else, enhance your mood and you feel better just being in bright sunlight in winter. Definitely, because even, you know, as soon as you go out, if you when you're on holiday or when the weather's good, you go out just feeling that sun on your skin. It just, it's kind of, as you say, we're like plants. We need that. It's like you're kind of, it's very invigorating and very energizing. Right. And we, we don't really know what the, all the reasons as vitamin D has certainly gotten the most attention, but we do see changes in blood pressure, heart rate, just being exposed to the sun. And there may be other things that help because if the sun is going to reset this master clock in your brain, then it changes your entire metabolic profile. So you would be able to, for example, digest food better, have more energy and so on. So there are a variety of different effects of sunlight that we are still trying to uncover.
Now, do you have any parting advice for our listeners with regards to environmental toxins and improving their health? So yes, a couple of things. One is, of course, we should all try to live in green spaces. Nature is not something, you know, that's out there. And people think that, you know, we can go on a holiday, we spend time with nature, and then we come back at home and, you know, life is what it is. But we need nature constantly because that's how we evolved in a sense, isn't it? We have to be in natural surroundings all the time. And so it is important that we live in green, pleasant, clean areas that will not only have psychological effects, but would try to remove all these toxins and air pollution and so on. But, you know, the green spaces are not a silver bullet and not going to cure everything. We need to be sort of vigilant about what sort of chemicals and products we use at home, that we live in ventilated houses, that we are not over burdening a house with different chemicals, have a lot of compressed wood around and, uh, you know, cook indoors all the time without proper ventilation and all those things. So we have to be careful about those exposures. And certainly having a good sleep habits and in synchrony with the natural environment is going to promote health regardless of whether you have, you know, different types of health issues and so on. It, it could be very, very helpful. So being around green spaces being vigilant about exposures to different type of pollutants and having sufficient exposure to sunlight is something an essential need, just like you know, breathing and eating. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us. It's been really inspiring and really interesting just to find out all this different research, you know, and just things that a lot of us wouldn't be aware of. Well, thank you for your interest, Michelle, and I hope that we could, I don't want to say jumpstart, it's all, lots of people already committed to this idea, but I think that we would think more deeply about our interactions with nature and how that is a necessity in the way we live. Where can people find more about you, Dr. Batnagar, and the work that you do? We have a website, they could go to the Greenheart Louisville, the Greenheart Project. You could look at that. There are a variety of different resources there. We have an institute called the Envirome Institute. And just like we said, you know, we have a genome. I think we also have an envirome that we live around. <laughs> so we're trying to understand what is it that individual environments that people live in and how they affect their health and disease risks. So you can look at the Envirome Institute's website uh, if you need additional information. And we'll put those details in the show notes. Well, thank you again, Dr. Batnagar, and all the best with the project and the research. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Thank you, Michelle. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Dr. Batnagar for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Dr. Batnagar in the show notes on the CNN website at www.cnnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about nutrition, herbal medicine or homeopathy, check out CNN's range of short courses and diploma training on the CNN website at www.naturopathy-uk.com. We have a series of open events coming up in the next few months, and you can find all the details on the events section of the website. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.